If you have your Bibles, I will invite you to turn with me to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, if you didn't bring a Bible, I would encourage you to follow along in the Pew Bibles. You can find that on page 957. And if you don't own a Bible, please take that as our gift to you this morning. John chapter 14, beginning in verse 15. Again, that's 957 of the Pew Bibles. You probably have some kind of bedtime ritual. With four young kids, we have a whole routine. It is not for the faint of heart. It's not all hard work, though. Uh, The end especially is sweet. After the kids have gotten ready, they climb into their bunks. They position themselves on the edge of their bed. They want to be as close as they can so they can hear and see the story that Jess is about to read to them. We've been doing the same book, same book series every single night. Little Pilgrim's Big Journey. If you know, you know. Uh, the books are adaptions of John, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. They're allegories for the Christian life. And these in particular, they follow little children as they make their journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city. And the stories, the pilgrimage, it accurately reflects the Christian life with all of its promise and perils, with all of its sweetness and sorrow, and of course, with a very good end. Now, the children, they often find themselves in what feels like insurmountable trouble. They are being attacked by Apollyon, the great and horrible dragon of the prince of this world. They are surrounded by hordes of Beelzebub. They are imprisoned and awaiting execution. It oftentimes feels as though darkness has overcome them, as though the king's path is too hard to make it. Now, other than the ending, these tend to be my favorite parts because it's here that the children remember. They recall some kind of gift that the king has given to them to see them to the river's edge. A key that unlocks every door in Doubting Castle. A shield to defend against the attack of the evil one. Sword to strike the beast. Papers to assure the child that they belong to the new city. Their king has foreseen every possible problem and has supplied them with everything they need to make it home. Okay, the king has given them good gifts. If you read much fantasy, particularly where there's some kind of quest involved, you know that there often comes a point in the narrative, a pivotal moment where in a bit of providence, the protagonist receives a gift that will aid them in their journey. I think of the line, the witch in the wardrobe after a hundred years of no, of winter, but no Christmas, Santa, he finally comes He gives the kiss. Kids, you'll recall, a sword, a horn, a healing cordial, all of which would be used at the right time to preserve their lives and defeat their enemies. You see it in basically every Harry Potter book, a cloak, a stone, a map, a broom, a golden snitch, something that at the time seemed insignificant, but it would become necessary in his quest to defeat he who must not be named. One of my favorites, one that's really struck with me in the Fellowship of the Ring, Frodo, early on, he receives this vial of water and starlight, and it came with a promise, right, that he would shine forth when all other lights failed, and it did. 
Frodo and Sam would use it to defeat a creature that stood between them and Mount Doom. Perfect gifts given in providence by the author of the story to aid the characters in their quest. You see, knowing where to go, be it the Celestial City or Mount Doom or to Aslan's army, knowing the way to get there, it will do you little good if you're not supplied with what you need to make it. John chapter 14. We find ourselves in a pivotal moment in the text, in the narrative, in the sweep of redemptive history. Jesus has told us where he's going, the Father's home. Jesus has told us the way to get there, it's him. But how are we going to make it when the journey is so perilous? Well, Jesus, the author of the story, the king of the city and the path, he gives the perfect gift to aid his people on their big journey home. John chapter 14, if you're able, I will invite you to stand with me for the reading of Holy Scripture. John 14, beginning in verse 15 and going through the end of the chapter. This is Jesus speaking. If you love me, you will keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He's the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him. But you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I am coming to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live too. On that day, you will know that I am in the Father. You are in me, and I am in you. The one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father. I also will love him and will reveal myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it you're going to reveal yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. The one who doesn't love me will not keep my words. The word that you hear is not mine, but is from the Father who sent me. I have spoken these things to you while I remain with you, but the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Don't let your heart be troubled or fearful. You've heard me tell you I'm going away and am coming to you. If you love me, you would rejoice that I am going to the Father because the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you may believe. I will not talk with you much longer because the ruler of this world is coming. He has no power over me. On the contrary, so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do as the Father commanded me. Get up, let's leave this place. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. You can be seated. Our big idea this morning, Jesus gives his people the Holy Spirit to supply them with everything they need to make it home. Jesus gives his people the Holy Spirit 
to supply them with everything they need to make it home. Okay, Jesus gives us as people, the Holy Spirit, to give us more gifts, everything that we need to make it home. And more specifically, we'll see three gifts that the Son gives us through the Spirit. First, Jesus gives us his teaching through the Spirit. Jesus gives us his presence through the Spirit. And Jesus gives us his peace through the Spirit. Jesus gives us his teaching through the Spirit. Jesus gives us his presence through the Spirit. And Jesus gives us his peace through the Spirit. Okay, three gifts through the Spirit, teaching, presence, peace. First, Jesus gives us his teaching through the Spirit. We start in verse 15. We'll spend quite a bit of time here. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. If you love me, you will keep my commands. This is so significant. It frames the entire conversation. Jesus repeats it several times. If you look at the text, verse 21 the one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And then Jesus states it negatively, verse 24, the one who doesn't love me will not keep my words. The people who love Jesus obey him. The people who don't love Jesus do not. Now, why is Jesus saying this here? Why now? Jesus is about to promise an incredible gift the vivifying, that is a life-giving, the sealing, preserving, perfecting presence and power of God, the Holy Spirit, it's not just for anyone. It's not for the world, verse 17. It's for Jesus' people. Well, who are his people? They are the ones whom Jesus loves with a special love and who in return love him. Jesus is in a loving relationship with his people. What does that look like? Well, in love, of course, Jesus creates us. He sustains us. He saves us. He sends the Spirit to indwell us. And in love, Jesus commands us. In love, we, in turn, obey him. You see, in love, Jesus teaches us. He instructs us. He directs us. He commands us. Brothers and sisters, this is so important for us to grasp. Jesus does not concede any love to command you. He commands you because he loves you. It is out of his concern for your good, out of his wisdom for your life, that he, the holy creator, commands you that you might be whole. It is a loving thing to command good things. Governments who do not declare and enforce just laws do not love their people. Okay, Lawlessness is not love. A parent of young children who knows what's best for them but doesn't command them for their good isn't loving them. They have confused gentleness with being negligent. Parents of young children don't just ask, we command. We command them not to touch the stove, not to play in the street, not to enter strangers' cars. Positively, we command them to bathe, to eat, to learn, to go to school. Why? We know what's best for them. We use our authority in love to command them for their good. Jesus commands us in love. Why? Because he knows and wants what's best for us. Now, what kind of things does Jesus command of us? The kind of principal command I think that we see in the book of John 
John 6, 29, Jesus tells us that the work of God is that we believe in the Son. The first command is to believe in the gospel. Jesus commands us this in love. How is it an act of love? Well, Jesus alone is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus alone is the resurrection and the life that defeats the grave. Jesus alone is the Son of God who reveals the Father. Jesus alone brings salvation, and so in love he commands us to find it in him. Jesus commands us to believe. He does so in love. Jesus, no doubt, though, has more than belief in him in mind. He says, if you look at the text, commands, plural, in love he aims to instruct us and rule over every aspect of our lives, how we treat one another, whom we marry, what we do with our time and our money, how and who we worship. Jesus' rule and his teaching is comprehensive. He commands us in love, and in love he expects us to obey. In fact, what Jesus makes so clear in the text is that there is no loving without obeying. Gregory the Great put it well in the 6th century. He wrote, the proof of love is in the works. Where love exists, it works great things, but when it ceases to act, it ceases to exist. Elsewhere, he writes that love for God is never lazy. You see, love leads to action, and it's revealed in action. Now, this, I think, for us is intuitive. Imagine you were married to someone, and they wrote you the sweetest notes. They gave you the most thoughtful gifts and they habitually cheated on you, right? A thousand words on a thousand cards wouldn't overcome what their actions prove. Love is revealed in action. I think that's intuitive for us. What's maybe less intuitive and more repulsive is that the kind of action that God is after is obedience. We don't want anyone outside of us defining what our relationship with God should look like. We don't want anyone outside of us telling us what to do. From the garden until now, we don't want to be commanded. We want to set the agenda. We want to write the vows. But relationship with Jesus is not like one with our peers, right? He is the creator and covenant-keeping Lord, and we are the subjects. He is the law-giving judge. We are the servants, He is the sin-forgiving Savior. We are the rebels. He is the death-defeating Adam. We are the reason there is death to begin with. It is Jesus' right as divine Son and human Messiah to command, and he always, always, always commands us for our good. And he always expects us to respond in obedience. Jesus commands and his people obey. Relationship with God cannot look any other way. If you command your God, he's not the God of the Bible. Jesus commands, he expects us to obey. It's how we love him. It's actually how we know that we love him. John, our same gospel writer, writes in 1 John chapter 5, verse 2, this is how we know what This is how we know that we love God's children when we love God and obey his commands. For this is what love for God is, to keep his commands. And, John tells us, his commands are not a burden. Do you love Jesus? 
How do you know that you love Jesus? Does Jesus know that you love him? As Pastor Josh regularly says, obedience is Christ's love language. In our culture, where the bar for being a Christian is so low, the bar for loving Jesus is so low, it used to mean going to church, it means claiming his name, it means maybe not being as bad as other people, it can be easy to be self-deceived into thinking that you love Jesus when really you don't. Jesus, with clarity, is defining what the relationship looks like. He commands and we obey. Now, to be clear, Jesus is not calling us to a kind of mere ethical compliance. Okay, you can superficially adhere to God's moral law and not love Jesus. You cannot murder and not love Jesus. You cannot lie and not love Jesus. You can go and give to church and not love Jesus. Okay, obedience is not simply ethical conformity, though what we do matters, but how and why we do it matters all the more. Matthew 15, 8, your lips can say the right thing. They can be close to God, and yet your heart far from him. There are really two sides of this. You can't love without obeying, and you can't obey without loving. You can't love without obeying, and you can't obey without loving. The kind of obedience that Jesus has in mind is the kind of obedience that's carried out in faith. Okay, the kind of obedience that Jesus has in mind is the kind of obedience carried out in faith. Notice I didn't say carried out in feeling. Yes, sometimes often, by God's grace, we happily, we passionately do the will of God. And yes, often, in order to obey, we have to say no to our feelings, our passions, our sinful desires in order to say yes to Jesus. We do this in trust. Often, we have to overcome our lack of desire for Jesus to do what he's commanded us. Brothers and sisters, I'm not talking about checking a list. I'm talking about lacking the gift of sight and feeling we still submit ourselves to Christ. That's called faith. In trust, we know that he has commanded us for our good and we obey him even when we don't feel like it. He loves us. We respond in love by obeying what he has told us to do. Now, Jesus is making it clear the Christian life is to be marked by obedience. That means we must know his teaching. That must mean we must be empowered to obey his teaching. And so Jesus then promises us a gift. Again, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commands. And I will ask the Father and he will give you a counselor to be with you, another counselor to be with you forever. Now, it's easy, I think, to misunderstand the relationship between verses 15 and 16. Maybe you felt this this week as you were studying the text. Jesus makes a few comments that sound as though we have to obey first, and then he gives us the Spirit. If you look at verse 21, you could misread it to say that we obey first, and then the Son and the Father love us. Verse 23, you could misread it to say, we obey first, and then God comes and makes his home with us. That would be to misunderstand the entire nature of the gospel. We know from John 3.16 that God loved us first by sending his son to die for us. 
that God demonstrated that love, Romans 5, 8, while we were yet sinners. John, again, our gospel writer, he writes with crystal clarity in 1 John chapter 4. There he says, we love because, we love because he first loved us. God does not love us in response to anything that we have done to him. In fact, the entire reason that we can respond in love to God is because God has poured his spirit into us. Romans 5, 5, God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Obedience can't be a precondition for the spirit because you cannot obey apart from the spirit. Paul makes this clear, Romans 8, 8, those who are in the flesh, that is those who do not have the spirit, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. He says in the same chapter, we cannot keep God's law. Verse 17, again, this world does not receive the spirit because they don't know him or see him or understand him. Paul writes this, around this idea as well in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the person without the spirit does not receive what comes from God's spirit because it is foolishness to him. He is not able to understand it since it is evaluated spiritually. You see, the spirit of God comes to us first. He opens our blind eyes. He renews our stone heart. He gives life to our spiritual corpses so that we might understand the teaching of God and respond in obedience. The spirit works. We respond. We trust. It leads to love. God acts. We respond. God loves. We love back. This is how the gospel works. Jesus is explaining, I think, the way that this loving relationship works where God loves, we respond in love. It's as we respond in love that we put ourselves in position to experience God's love all the more. He gives gifts to the people he loves who love him in return. So Jesus gives the spirit to his people knowing that they will respond in love. Apart from him, we cannot understand or love or obey. So how does the Spirit help us to obey? Well, look at verse 17. What's the Spirit called? The Spirit of truth. The Holy Spirit is meant to be our teacher. Brothers and sisters, is that how you think about the Spirit? As a teacher? Do you think of yourselves as his student? At least from my vantage point, in popular Christian culture, the Holy Spirit tends to be associated more with feelings than with truth, right? More with spontaneity than order, more with chaos than control, like more like the third child of the Trinity. But what does Jesus tell us the Spirit is about? Truth, objective reality. He intends to be the master and to have us as his students, Jesus stresses this in verses 25 and 26. If you look at the text, I have spoken these things to you while I remain with you, but the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. So what does the Spirit do? He teaches us. What does he teach us? Everything that Jesus has taught us in his earthly ministry. 
This might be one of the most significant things to grasp about the Spirit's teaching. His words don't go any further than Christ's words. Who, verse 24, don't go any further than the Father's words. Like if you wanted to draw a Venn diagram of the Spirit's words and the Son's words, it would be a circle. Jesus makes this clear in John 16, verses 13 and 14. He says, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. He will glorify me because he will take from, he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. Okay, brothers and sisters, if anyone comes to you claiming that they have a message from the Spirit and it's contrary to the word of God, it has come from a Spirit, but it's not the Holy One. The Spirit's message is the Son's message. His mission is to help us understand the Son's words. And where do we hear the Son's words? In Holy Scripture, right? God's words to us about the Son inspired by the Spirit. It's not enough to know the facts of Scripture in a kind of brute way. We need the Spirit to teach us to that we might understand them. Calvin writes of this, until we have been inwardly instructed by him, the understanding of all of us are seized with vanity and falsehood. We cannot really get this unless the Spirit teaches it to us in our hearts. He takes Scripture, he opens it up in our minds and hearts that we might delight in the things of God and bend our wills to him. This happens as we read the Bible, as we listen to the Bible, as we study the Bible, as we meditate on the Bible, as we listen to good preaching on the Bible. You see, brothers and sisters, to be spirit-led is to be word-taught. You cannot have one without the other. If we want to be a Holy Spirit people, if we want to be a Holy Spirit-filled church, if we want to be a place where God's power is clearly at work, where his presence is clearly felt, then we need to understand the words of Christ. We need to delight in the words of Christ. We need to obey the words of Christ. This can only happen as we study scripture in the power of the Spirit. We cannot do it on our own and we cannot do it apart from the Bible. This is how the Spirit works. It's his job, 1 Corinthians 12, 3, to teach us to confess and to conduct ourselves as though Jesus Christ is Lord. So Jesus invites us into this loving relationship with him where he cares for us. He cares for us in part by teaching us. And then he expects us in love to obey him. He teaches us in his word through the Spirit this is the first gift that he gives us in the text. The second, we see that Jesus gives us his presence through the Spirit. And Jesus gives us his presence through the Spirit. Now, we've seen in chapters 13 and 14 that the disciples are confused and they're troubled about Jesus' coming absence. He told them that he's about to leave. Jesus here clarifies that his departure is actually good news. We see that in verse 28. Jesus says, if you loved me, like if you desire oh, my good and my glory, if you love me, you would rejoice that I'm going to the Father. It's good news that Christ goes to the Father because it means that he's enthroned on high. 
It means that his glory is revealed. He is revealed to be who he is, which is the Son of God. And it means that he, in heaven, Ephesians 4, 8, can give his people good gifts, namely the Spirit. Jesus, as hard it is for us to understand, it's good news that he's left us bodily so that he can come to us by means of the Spirit. And this is what we see over the next several verses. We see in verse 16 that Jesus promises to give us the Spirit to be with us for how long? Forever. Christian, think about that. You will never for a single second of your life find yourself without the presence of God. Well, what about when I'm sinning? What about right after I've sinned? When in weakness it feels like I'm walking away, Jesus says that he gives you the Spirit to be with you forever. You can't lose him and he will not lose you. He is, as Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, our seal, our down payment of the inheritance that is to come. He's with us forever. But he's not just with us. If you look at verse 17, Jesus tells the disciples, you do know him because he remains with you and will future be in you. Here, I think that Jesus is telling the disciples that they know the Spirit, the Spirit is with them, alongside them, as he's present fully in Christ. We saw in John chapter 1 from the testimony of John the Baptist that the Spirit rested on Jesus and remained on him. The Spirit is currently with them, but not yet inside them. Soon, after resurrection and Pentecost, the Spirit will be in them and then comes in us when we believe. God himself will take up residence in his people. We, the covenant, the new covenant people of God, become his temple forever. Do you realize what a privilege this is? In the old covenant, only one man once a year went into one part of the temple on behalf of one nation. Now God is taking people from every tribe, nation, and tongue and is making them his temple. Brothers and sisters, your hearts has become the holy of holies for God. There God's law is written not on stone tablets but on flesh and there the spirit of holiness dwells. Paul writes 1 Corinthians 3.16, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you individually? If we believe in Jesus, we have become his temple. Corporately, we have become his temple. Paul writes, Ephesians 1.23, that the church is the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. This means that when we gather on Sunday mornings, it's not just human bodies filling a building, but rather God himself is filling us. What a privilege it is to be his temple. You see, when the Spirit comes to us, that means that God comes to us. That means that Christ comes to us. And I think this is what Jesus is getting at as a means to comfort them over the next several texts, verses. Verse 18, Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. Right? He doesn't intend to leave us alone in his absence. I am coming to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. I think Jesus is speaking about his presence to them by means of the Holy Spirit because in the verses that precede, he uses the same kind of language. The world won't be able to see the Spirit, but they'll see the Spirit. The world soon won't see Jesus, but we'll continue to see him. This happens by means of the Spirit. So the indwelling presence of the Spirit brings Jesus to us, 
But it doesn't just bring him near us. It brings us all of his benefits. Look at what Jesus says next there in verse 19. Because I live. Because I live, you will live too. Again, when the Holy Spirit comes not just near us, but in us, he brings Christ to us in such a way and brings us to Christ in such a way that everything that Jesus accomplished in his life and death becomes applied to us. Jesus shares himself and all of his benefits with us. You guys realize this is not how things normally work. Like somebody else's success typically means very little for you. Like I don't feel very happy when some stranger wins the Powerball. Like, I wish it was me. Someone else beating cancer doesn't do much for your sickness. Someone else's raise doesn't do anything for your bills. Their marriage does nothing for your desire. Their kids don't open your womb. Other people's successes are never ours in the same kind of a way. And not so with Jesus. Jesus says, because I live, you live. It's as though Jesus is saying, what's mine is yours because I am yours and you are mine. Because I obeyed the law perfectly, so did you, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Because I died to sin, so did you, Colossians 2.20. Because I rose from the grave, so did you, Romans 6.4. Because I have ascended on high, so have you, Ephesians 2.6. Because I rule over the cosmos, so Will you, Revelation 22.5, this is the gospel. That Jesus Christ has accomplished everything for us and given it to us as a gift as though we ourselves were the ones who did it. If you're visiting us this morning and you're not a Christian, this is the main thing we would want you to hear this morning. That the life that you're living is not true life, but Jesus offers it as a gift to you. It can only, you can only have it insofar as you have Christ. The life that you should have lived, but you didn't, he lived for you, he was perfect. The death that you deserve, he bore on the cross for you. He rose from the grave, he's ascended on high, and now he offers you forgiveness of sins and life with God as a gift. It can only come by means of Jesus. We would encourage you this day to turn from your sins and to trust in Christ, to live because he lives. You see, the Spirit coming into us doesn't just make Jesus near to us. It makes him ours. It makes us his. Calvin famously noted or wrote about this. He says, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us. Therefore, to share with us... What he has received from the Father, he had to become ours and to dwell within us. For this reason, he is called our head and the firstborn among many brothers. We also, in turn, are said to be engrafted into him and to put on Christ. All that he possesses is nothing to us until we grow into one body with him. Stretching the limits of words, Jesus says it's like our lives have become intertwined. It's like they're one. This is precisely what Jesus gets out of the next verse, verse 20. Jesus says, on that day, I think again, this is after resurrection. This is the indwelling of the Spirit who teaches us. You will know, on that day you will know that I am in the Father. 
Okay, we've already seen this, John chapter 14. The Father's in the Son, the Son is in the Father. This makes sense because they're one, John 10, 30. In technical speech, the Father and Son and Spirit share the same substance or essence. Metaphorically, it's like they share the same divine space. Eternally and equally, they indwell one another. Okay, Jesus has told us this already. We might not understand it, we get it. Verse 20, on that day you will know that I am in the Father. You are in me and I am in you. Jesus gives us a promise that should just floor us. He is giving us the same relationship with the Father that he himself has. This is what makes the Son the Son. He gives it to us. In Christ we are adopted, we are hidden with him, and therefore hidden in the bosom of the Father, John 1.18. What is the Son's by nature and right, he gives us by grace. He does so as he became our brother, as he became human, and as he pours his divine spirit onto us. He unites us to himself and hides us with him in God. Brothers and sisters, could you be any more secure? Could you be any more loved? Could you be any more alive? God is in you and you are in God. Again, in the gospel, we get Jesus and all that belongs to him. We get him in us and us in him. Jesus then takes this truth and he presses it further by adding some imagery to it. We see this in verse 23. Speaking of his people, Jesus says, we, the Father and I, will come to him and make our home with him. Think about how much you have to like someone to live with them for like a year. Think about how much living with someone for a year reveals to you how much you might not actually like them. Jesus has already told us, John 14, verses two and three, that he's gone to the Father to prepare a home for us. And it's as though God doesn't want us to wait to be with him, so he comes to us and makes his home in our hearts. Think about how much God must love you if he wants his home to be with you forever. This is, of course, what awaits us, Revelation 21.3. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his people and God will be with them and will be their God. What awaits us, God has already given us in part as the Holy Spirit has made our hearts his home. Paraphrasing Augustine, God is closer to us than we are to ourselves. God dwells in us, Father, Son, and Spirit. So Jesus gives us his teaching through the Spirit. He gives us his presence through the Spirit, which comes with so many promises as he makes us Christ, and Christ's are his. And then Jesus gives us his peace through the Spirit. This is the last gift we see in the text. Jesus gives us his peace through the Spirit. It's really part of the Spirit's name and job description. We see that in verse 16. Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor. Now there's not a one-for-one -one equivalent of this word in English. Maybe you've heard it transliterated before, paraclete. The CSB renders it counselor, ESV helper, the NIV advocate, the King James comforter. Calvin preferred to speak of protector. All the words are trying to grasp with the same idea, namely the Holy Spirit is given to us to help us, to strengthen us when we are weak, to protect us when we are under attack, 
to instruct us where we are unlearned, and to comfort us where we are discouraged. Okay, God has given us outside help. It's coming inside of us. Counselors especially fitting because he teaches us. Comfort is fitting because of the circumstances. The disciples' hearts are troubled. They're troubled simply at the thought of Jesus leaving. What do you think they're going to feel when they see him arrested? When they see him crucified? When they too are facing persecution? When many of them are facing crucifixion? Brothers and sisters, the cause for discomfort and anxiety in this world abound. Our sin, our sin continues to wage war against us. The world still hates us. Satan, I promise you, is more bent on keeping you from heaven than you are eager to get there. The cause for anxiety abounds. And so Jesus gives us a gift through his spirit, the comforter and counselor. Verse 27. Jesus says, peace I leave with you. Okay, in his absence, he gives us peace, but it's not just any peace. Jesus goes on, my peace I give to you. He then makes a point to say, it's not like the peace the world gives. I do not give you as the world gives. Now, peace can be difficult to define. It's almost easier to visualize. It doesn't look like a raging storm. It looks more like calm seas. It doesn't look like parents bitterly fighting, but rather joyfully working together. It doesn't look like, of course, killing children and stealing citizens and bombing buildings. It looks like partnership. It doesn't look like having to fear a walk to your car at night. It looks like not even having to lock the doors. Peace is when things are the way that they are supposed to be. It's not just that there's no hostility. It's that there's friendship. There's no sickness, there's healing and wholeness. There's no chaos, there's order. And what it does for us is it yields a tranquility of heart. When things are the way that they're supposed to be, it yields tranquility of heart. A sense of rest in what is right because there is no potential for harm. Jesus gives us peace, but how is it possible when there's so much potential for harm? How can we possibly have peace when it looks like things are out of control? When it oftentimes feels like we're losing? Well, as Jesus shows us, things aren't often what they seem. Peace is possible because Christ is the one with the power. Jesus goes on, verse 29, I have told you now before it happens. Again, his betrayal, his Departure, I told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you may believe. I will not talk with you much longer because the ruler of this world is coming. He has no power over me. On the contrary, so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do as the Father commanded. Okay, Jesus is telling them now so that when it looks like Christ is hanging in failure, when it appears as though the prince of this world has won, they will know that he hasn't. Jesus is not overpowered by Satan on the cross. <laughs> no, he lays down his life for sin in obedience to the Father because he loves him and us. The cross is not some cosmic boxing match. Satan there is under the boot of God. 
This is why Jesus can give us peace. We can have peace knowing that in the spiritual realm, humility often, if not always, precedes glory. We can have peace knowing that God always keeps his promises to his people. We can have peace knowing that God works all things. He directs all things for the good of his people, yes, even our pain. We can have peace knowing that though Satan may use all the power of hell to try and harm us and not a single hair will fall from our heads apart from the will of the Father. We can have peace knowing that God, by the power of his spirit, will see us home. Jesus, in the midst of what looks like danger and chaos, offers us peace because he is the one with the power. And again, he makes a point to stress that the peace that Jesus gives us is not like the peace of the world. We see that verse 27. If the peace that Jesus gave us is like the peace of the world, he would not be worthy of our trust. You know, it's really ironic when you think about it. We live in the most comfortable generation in human history. We're the richest people. We have access to the most advanced health care. We're connected to more people than we probably like. Uh, we have what feels like an infinite and endless supply of knowledge and information. We have gurus and counselors and influencers. And we are hands down the most anxious people who have ever lived on this planet. Why? The world is making us so many promises it can't cash. Any promise of lasting peace or rest or flourishing or love apart from Jesus is not real peace at all. We need the kind of peace that only Christ can bring. Jesus brings us peace between us and God, Romans 5.1. He does this by justifying us. We need peace between us and one another, Ephesians 2.14. Jesus does this by unifying us. We need peace in our hearts, a kind of peace that only Jesus can bring, verse 27, by means of the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is offering you what no one in the world can. That though your health will fade, that though the world will hate you, that though your relationships will struggle, that though you might be impoverished, that though the enemy fights against you, you can still have peace. Why? Jesus has overcome the world. He is in control. He works all things for our good. He is the one with the power. You see, because of the Spirit's indwelling presence, life can look like a raging storm and our hearts be still waters. Why? We know that Christ has the power. We know how the story ends. We know where we're going. We know the way to get there, and we know he supplied us with everything we need to make it. Trouble can swirl. The prince of this world could be on his way, and Jesus can command us. Don't let your hearts be troubled or fearful. Yes, we often find ourselves in what feels like insurmountable odds. Dragons before us, hordes of Beelzebub behind us. As like little pilgrims, we make our journey to the celestial city, and yet we know we can rely on God's promises in his word, comfort from his presence, peace that surpasses understanding. Though danger abounds, we know that the king has overcome, and so shall we. He teaches us this through his spirit. He brings it near to us by means of his presence in a kind of way that we can actually feel peace that transcends understanding. 
we will make it home. The only thing standing between us and the river's edge is time. The king has supplied everything we need. He will see to it that we get there. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we praise you, seeing that you have lavished upon us so many good gifts. And namely, your son, you gave your son in love to a world that hated you, that you might make us your people. Further, you and your son have given us your spirit to seal us, to comfort us, to assure us that we have been adopted in your son. Your spirit even now intercedes on our behalf and cries out in our hearts, Abba, Father. We know that, you, that we are your children, that you are our Father because of him. Father, we pray that you would use the preaching of this word, the whole of this service, to increase our love for you, to increase our reliance on the Spirit. We pray all this in Jesus' name and by the power of his Spirit. Amen.